Welcome to Live Arts Market Pulse on the Artelligence Podcast. Each week, Live Arts sales team discusses the most important subjects in the ever-changing art marketplace. I'm your host, Marion Maneker. In this week's Live Art Market Pulse, we discuss the New York post-war and contemporary art sales with the incomparable Sarah Friedlander. Sarah is a deputy chairman at Christie's, but she described herself to New York Magazine's The Cut as an art merchant. We want to talk about selling art, so let's get going with Live Art's George O'Dell and Sarah. The mid-season sales are over and they are surprisingly good. The the numbers went up because of the additional single owner sales, but even without that, that there were more lots sold for mostly the same amount of money, which I don't think anyone was expecting that, right? Everyone assumed that there'll be a flight to quality and that the you know cutting edge edge of the market would be the first to suffer. And instead it's holding up really strong. So I starting there, I thought, uh, Sarah, give us your take as as someone who has to take all this in and start thinking about the next season. I think we need to stop calling them mid-season sales. We live in a world where there are no seasons anymore. And uh, that's a great point. Follow me on Instagram, which obviously you all do. You know, you know that I have a winter is coming campaign, which started long before COVID. I'm not saying I predicted the global pandemic, but I'm not not saying that. Um, but I do think we're in a moment in which, you know, people are looking at art all the time. They are consuming art. They are going to art fairs all the time. And look, are there too many sales? Probably. But we also seem to be in a market that is supporting that at all seasons. So it is true that November and May seem to be the big convening moments uh, globally in the art world. Um, and we certainly spend a lot of time building sales around that. But, you know, when I started at Christie's in 2007, um, you know, these were like $4 million sales. And now, like, we had a $77 million sale. Like, that was a bigger sale than the big sales in London. And, like, so I think we just have to, you know, re- recalibrate. Yeah, New York New York March is now a place. And I thought it was quite interesting in this, in this season in particular that, on top of the post-war to present, that's what Christie's calls it, um, that you also had Adam, which was in effect an evening sale, standalone, single owner named sale, multi-department. But you also had another multi-department, unnamed single owner session, like two breakout sales, which you pile all that into the season and it's big, bigger almost than, you know, a lot bigger than a lot of sales, you know, that happened across the pond. So Yeah, and and I think sometimes... Sometimes, George, these sales of collections are within sales and sometimes Mm -hmm. they're their own sale. And we, you know, look, uh, this may be a surprise to all of you, but a lot of that decision is really uh, based on the consigning uh, entity versus what we think the market really wants. but uh, we we like to make stories. We we like to imagine that there are like there's real intentionality to this, and so much of it is just what happens. Someone shows up and says, "I'm ready to sell," and you're like, "Well, we could sell this stuff, so let's do it." Listen, uh, Marion, there's great intentionality on our uh, interest in winning things. I will say that. Um, but but look, I think 
Last March, there were single owner collections embedded and and charity sales embedded within sales at Christie's, Sotheby's, and Phillips. You know, last March we made fifty five, you know, mil, or I shouldn't say we made, we sold fifty five million dollars worth of art. And this, uh, you know, past week it was um, seventy seven, seventy one million dollars. So you know. I think the biggest takeaway for me or the biggest like point of intrigue about this week was how um, alive and strong the design market is. Mm-hmm. Because if you look at the biggest prices in those single owner sales, you know, world record for Royer in the Adam sale. I mean, that was a really big part of, of that market. And the integration of those two historically very divergent markets into one is something that we're paying a lot of attention to. It's also interesting to me because the design market used to be kind of the leading indicator. It would be the last to rise and the first to fall, you know, because it was sort of on the edges of this contemporary art market. And and now we're seeming to see the reverse, which is it, it re- has real legs and that it was, you know, somewhat the, the ballast that really made these sales uh, work, but you know, even without the design objects, the um, the and the Adam sale, and even the Roche in in that uh, Pacific Islander uh, collection, those were all high value works, but but those weren't really the driving forces of the sale. The things that people were really bidding on were much lower down the estimate range, and I, I'm assuming that's just a, a function of people looking for better representation, new artists, emerging markets, sort of the next uh, big thing, or is that something else that's going on? I I thought personally when looking at those sales, I thought there were real collector objects in them. Obviously, there are some younger things within the Adam sale, but the Pacific Islander sale in its whole was really the culmination of somebody's collecting vision. You know, the photography matched the the art itself. Leon Polksmith, Carmen Herrera, obviously the Carmen Herrera underperformed, but it all it all had a thesis behind it. It had an aesthetic that pulled the whole thing together. Um, you know, I think it was more, you know, the statement of one person's collecting habits around certain common themes, um, more than to big name kind of tick the boxes objects. And, and not not so much of it was, you know, what we saw in like the now sale or the first 10 lots of an evening sale or the first 15 lots of a Phillips sale kind of material. So so real supply driven stuff like we didn't know that there was so much demand for Leon Polk Smith until some good works came up and people were like, hey, I've always wanted one of those. They were also power to the low estimate. Those were really nicely priced, I thought. So, you know, if you know what you're looking at and you've drank the Kool-Aid on Leon Polk Smith, then those are well priced. But uh, but I also think like to that point you know, Listen has done an amazing job with that market. And so, you know, we don't, we as auction specialists don't always have an opportunity to deal in the material that is doing well somewhere else. And so when you have something great and you price it based on, you know, whatever irrelevant art net comp comes up, the market's going to show up, but we sit on the shoulders of the galleries who are doing that work. Right. Because you have to have a pretty high base level past the gallery experience to know to come into one of the major auction houses, Christie's instance, and see that and go, that's amazing. That's a great estimate. I'm going to go for that based on those tick points. Well, and I think, you know, again, trade secret, when you're dealing with one consigner, you can look at the collection holistically and say, you know, these things, you know, these are the estimates where we're going to push a little bit because we think that the market can bear it. And these are the things where, you know, it's best to be conservative and let it ride. 
And and look, we're right a lot. You know, we sold everything in Adam Lindemann's collection. I mean, we withdrew one lot and every other thing found a buyer. Like that's kind of amazing, actually. Yeah. And stuff that hadn't found a buyer in the past, like, like the Guyton, right? Like the Guyton had been seen in Miami fairly recently. Um, and it found its home at, you know, a good price. That's still in any seven figure price for a Guyton today, like clap your hands because you, you know, they're five fifty on the primary and you can walk into a gallery and pretty much get one as long as you can pass the way Guyton sniff test. Do you, um, there was also the Ito that led the sale. Speaking of, you know, standing on the shoulders uh, of galleries, Matthew Marks has this great uh, Ito show and it was sort of perfect timing. I assume that's the reason it was the first lot to, to sell so well, but it, that kind of range shows that the real bidding is for, I guess, to me, these kinds of discoveries, uh, uh, you know, trying to think al along lines of what else there was that uh, uh, sold, um, you know, on that uh, thing. I saw that a bunch of Catherine Bradford's sold well. Um, there's the continuing uh, Lynn Drexler market that you guys have been so important uh, in sort of launching uh, I think the big surprise to me was that the the Mutus clearly keyed to the the new museum show just didn't sell across the uh, town, and I don't know that that's just there's just not enough of a developed market for her work to um, you know have it happen yet. Maybe it'll filter through uh, after the 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 show, but it's a little counter uh intuitive because everyone always thinks that you know it's an automatic well, if you have a big museum show everything sells and here's a case where it's not that easy i think too you know there was she was you know in the front of the mat last year and there was no big kind of shift or kind of conversation around that they were there walk by them if you go down fifth avenue and back in my long days at auction houses i think at phillips in 2013 when we were selling sashi's collection as part of that partnership we would have mutus in every sale and it was one two bids i think the first thing i ever sold in an evening sale was a mutu and it was like 50 grand at the time and that it just hasn't ever moved it's great work it's not the easiest for people to live with domestically but it just has never really grabbed i don't know if it's because it's collage photo collage it just it people love it but like people don't want to go for it for some reason it seems to remain a primary market so Sarah, you guys also had a mini collection of like four works. I think it was called 50 Years Female, but uh, at least two of them are the two that I, I paid attention to did quite well. The Ethel, let me pronounce it correctly. It's uh, Schwabacher. And oh, yeah, I was on the phone for that. And so tell us more about that. It was just like a fascinating. Yeah, I mean, it's and again, I think this is it's we are the market is so estimate driven right now. And if something feels like an opportunity or a steal, like that little Bob Thompson, like it's so perfect. And, you know, it, it feels like everyone has this secret discovery moment around it. But in fact, five people have that. And most people who, you know, there are a few people who will only spend $10,000. Like if you're spending $10,000, it's likely that I'm going to be able to get you up to at least $25,000. Then it drops down to the people who are between 25 and 50. But that's actually a very easy jump to make if it feels like it's something great 
and special. And again, we the access to information, the transparency around pricing, I think is ultimately a great thing for the market. But it means that everyone can look at what things have made before. So if you have a Wangechi Mutu that's at 60 to 80,000 and you see like, actually, these haven't been selling at 30, no one's going to bid 60, especially not the dealers if they're going to be able to put it on their booth and justify the price. But of artists that haven't historically had those kinds of results, like, yeah, go to $50,000. Like, it's not, you know, in a way, it's not that much more. Um, the Zoe Longfield was the other one in that gr- group that also sold for, you know, 50 some odd thousand dollars. Yeah. And I, and I think part of that is like, there haven't been 20 to, you know, hit the market for, you know, forever. And so we're not looking at historical pricing that would make somebody particularly sensitive to, you know, to a, to a result. I think also in the case of Bob Thompson, there's just, there's a lot of murkiness out there. So if something can come through Christie's or one of the other houses and pass the SNEF test and be seen by all the dealers and nobody raises a hand and say, there's a problem with this, that's, that provides a lot of confidence. That's hard to find in these markets that there's not a lot of archive material about them. It's a few people that kind of control it, know it, you know, can say like, yeah, that gets the kiss on the forehead. That doesn't. Um, so when it can be seen on the, public forum and, and pass through, that's a lot of confidence. Yeah. Um, I think that's that's something in these discovery markets that's lacking elsewhere um, because of like fear of making reps and warranties on auth or fear of putting something in front of those people to get those reps and warranties. You know, if it can pass the public eye, it seems like there's an okay feeling behind it. The the Thompsons were four for four. The one that was priced at, you know, a $50,000 estimate sold there. And then the others all pretty much rose to that level. You know, they either sold for 35000 all in or 65000 uh, you know, 70000 uh, all in. Is that just because there's, there's sort of a price out there and everyone knows it? Or just there's a limited number of buyers and, you know, they stop there? Again, I think you have to look at where the bidding started and how high someone was willing to go. Like, because every single person, every friend of mine in the art world, with the exception of George O'Dell, probably because he was on holiday with his family, called me about that Bob Thompson and was like, I'm like, I want to bid on that. But most of those people are out at 25. But, you know, there's going to be that population, you know, that are going to, you know, take it up. But look, at the end of the day, it's, I mean, that was the little one was like five by eight inches. So, you know, at some point you're going to stop. Per square inch, that's a lot of money. A little bit, yeah. 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 I mean, even for painter who's known for a big bob thompson is what like 20 inches so you know we're not talking in grand scales here but all right well let's not bury the lead because the most exciting uh result was the richard estes new record by 50 percent over the last uh uh, price point so something like 1.28 million and and in uh, i guess november october two works sold around that 800,000 range so there's a richard estes or maybe even got one hopes a photorealist boomlet coming along i i know a lot of people who are really counting on it Counting on it because they 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 own a lot of it and, and accumulating, it or they're just all fans. No, I think I think anyone who loves American art has to love photorealism. I mean, when you look at some of those Bechtel watercolors or those great Charles Bell like pinball machines, like there's a nostalgic, wonderful Americana thing. I think we're 
also in a moment in a, in a kind of like adverse abstraction way where we're looking at the technical skill of figuration and celebrating that a little bit, right? Like we're no longer like, you know, into the kind of minimalist bling aesthetic that anyone could have made. It's like, wow, that's really like, that's technically, you know, you, that's great. Like you can see the hand of the artist or whatever. And I think it was a really important movement in 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 post-war America. And um, and I think, you know, it's 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 it should come back. It should like there should be a strong market for it. And uh, the question is whether or not that will become global, because I don't know if my colleagues in Asia or even in Europe, I, I think it's like a 95% market market. But Stranger Things have picked up international audiences. I mean, there's no reason Ernie Barnes should sell in Asia. I mean, there's there's other things that are just, you know, oddly Americana-ish that seem to be developing uh, global audiences, maybe because of just their success or because they they speak, you know, America to people. I mean, I don't disagree with you guys. And and there, I think, you you know, Sarah, you put your finger on it. There's there's something like Wayne Tebow and the photorealists almost kind of go hand in hand. I, I was going to say, you kind of have to make the argument that Tebowed and, you know, photorealist Richter has scaled to a price where you have to look at what's kind of under the surface and apolitical, apop, and what do you have? as American photorealism, maybe less Robert Bechtel, because that's kind of, there's a bit of gothic in that, in my opinion, yeah. whenever I look at them. Um, and that might always, but actually one of the biggest Bechtel collectors I had understood when I got kind of deep on the Bechtel market for a second, lived in Japan, lives in Japan. So it's actually already over there. And it's probably due to technical pro proficiency of the hand would be my guess. We should do a show. I mean, we should do a photo. Like Let's a do it. Okay. I'll, I'll, I'll show, work on that. Like in, yeah. in Asia. Yeah. Forget a show. How about getting one into an evening sale? I mean, doesn't this require a little bit of flag waving and get finding just the right work to get people excited and pay attention? Marion, I feel like you could work at an auction house. <laughs> Like, I feel like you really, you're really getting it all right here. Um, yes, yes, is the answer. But that would require like the right work, I guess, is what we're saying. And is and is it, and maybe the other question is, is it a big Cottingham? Is it a Estes? Who's who's the, the kind of prow of the ship that's going to be the icebreaker that we get other things to, to you know, fill in behind? I think, right, I would say. Estes, just because that's where we've got like the most market movement and probably, I don't know, maybe like not even like the, well, there's, there's cityscapes and different angles and maybe it's the closest thing you could start relating to the bigger market juggernauts would probably be my guess at gunning. Some of the other ones feel a bit cutesy in a way, like the Cunningham, I don't know that's going to get there in the same same respect. Right. And and are we talking about Chuck Close or we're not talking about Chuck Close? I, I don't know if we're at where, you know, we might still be canceled over there. So I thought I thought Chuck Close was a supply issue, Sarah, or is it just the general sort of feeling about Chuck Close? I thought you couldn't really find the the early works to, to sell. If you did, you you probably would or you probably sell them privately easily. Yeah, maybe. I mean, it's uh, I haven't seen I, I haven't seen maybe one come across my desk, um, but I think he's, you know, um, he's in the book, you know, yep. uh, and I would certainly say, you know, the photorealist artist who has made the most, you know, has had the highest prices at auction. I mean, I think, and, and privately, I mean, those paintings are, you know, those, those paintings from the sixties, the portraits have, you know, sold for a lot more money than Richard Estes on his best day. Well, you know, the Virginia Museum of Fine Arts has this interesting room of photorealists and in it, they put um, a Barclay Hendricks double portrait. 
And uh, I was talking to the curator about it because someone had made some snotty comment about, well, he's not a photorealist. And she was like, well, we know that. And we put him in there because he works from photography. But it was also an interesting way of kind of making him present in something that was relatively contemporaneous to when he, he worked. And the, the room works. It's sort of this beautiful double portrait uh, kind of fits with all these other very realistic po portraits. So I'm wondering if there's also other ways that, you know, all of this could come together and work off each other, you know, if you get the right group of wor works in the right kind of sequencing. What what else did we see in these uh, sales that uh, we took notes on and thought, hey, we could do something here? I mean, the young side of the market seems to continue unabated for sure. That seems to be without question. The only question that I start to wonder is when you have a, you know, a sale dedicated to the young stuff that makes a hundred percent sell-through rate, is it at the suffering of the other side of the market or does it not really matter? Does breaking out the sessions do nothing to change, you know, people's outlook and perspective on it? You know, I always remember like when in London, when we would do the Italian sales and you'd, you'd sort of switch from like. Italian sale and all the Italian dealers would get up and walk out of the room. And then, you know, the next group of people would sit down and you'd have this kind of session change in the middle and then get really awkward because people had the same reserve seats and wanted to stay. Um, but I don't know if that matters anymore because so much of it's on the internet and, you know, there were major lots on the young stuff in London that were bought online. I think the Shara Hughes at Christie's was bought in Singapore, if I remember correctly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Or Japan. Yeah. It, I remember it was an, it was an Asian call out when it yeah. was sold online. And I, I I know that a number of other lots across the evening sales not called out on where the bidding was from also went to Asia on the young side. Can, can we go back to Shara Hughes for a second? That seems to be inexhaustible demand. Every time you think, okay, they've sold so many at such high prices, you know, this market just can't possibly go on at this level. More things sell, not necessarily at higher prices, but just at very strong prices and multiple works. Is it just there's so many? Yeah, I mean, I think that there has become a divide between the newer work and the older work like it's funny to say older it was like 20 minutes ago but i do think and and i and i and i feel this actually true with a lot of the artists who have been maybe working for the past 5 years and whose markets are kind of exploding like people like the more recent the work, the better. And so yeah. I actually felt like that was a, I mean, it was a fine result for the year of the painting and, and you know, by all means, a very strong result for an artist who hasn't been making work for that long. But I also feel like, you know, the estimate was four to 600,000 and it hammered at 380. So it's not like that, you know, there were two bids on that. So yeah. um, I, it's interesting that George, you used the word unabated. Because I, I'm feeling like there is a little bit of froth coming out of the young stuff, but I also wonder if maybe we're not bringing to market the right crop of young artists right now. Like, I, th I, those young, <clears throat> air quote, artists, like, we've seen them in sales for two or three cycles now. The real question is who's next. And yeah. it's going to become increasingly challenging and complicated to get there because I think that I've never seen the primary market so strong. And and people who are people who are getting the best access to the best works on the primary market are not going to be the ones flipping things into the sales. Totally. And I think what you're seeing in the in Hughes specifically is the stuff that comes out with the big price tags attached to it like you said is air quotes young it's like these 2015 2017 paintings which are 
kind of rough and you know they're not they're not the same as the ones we saw making upwards of seven figures last year they're the kind of 300 400 pay thousand dollar pictures and people want 750 for them out of the gate you know, like that's just not what that object is worth and i don't know that there's enough education around this kind of split in the market you know i think if you backtrack a little bit an artist like jonas wood is very much the same there's this clear defining line within jonas wood of what is again an early painting and what is a you know more defined more recent painting and the market is completely split across those kinds of works like baseball players basketball players early plants make one thing and the landscapes, pots, fish pots, et cetera, make a different price. And I, I agree with your comment to quality too. And maybe this is the flight to quality in the mid-career section, right? I think, you know, I don't think the market has seen a great Albert Olin, save the computer painting that Sotheby's had last fall on the market. And I think most of the Olins that hit the auction houses across the board almost serve at a detriment to the market because they're not as good as like what's happening over in Chelsea right now. They're just well, like the examples that are currently available. People are paying over a million dollars for 2022 yeah. paintings. And and I think you're right, George. Although I do think that the one we had in November, which was an early aughts abstract work, <laughs> was a really good example that should have found yeah. one. That was, buyer, and that but that was the um that was the one from the Amon collection, right? That was the Doris. No, painting. no, no. It was no. A, it was a it was a private collection. Uh it okay. was um, Oh, that was nice. Yeah, sorry. I'm thinking of the one in London right now, the Gallery K provenance one. Right. When right. those pictures are all very specific, like very specific old and like they've got funky surfaces on them. Right. They're they're just it's its own isolated body of work that seems to have only come out of Norway for some reason. And um it's, but I just think there hasn't been a really killer painting that's given like the spotlight in the correct way. Mm -hmm. Probably the last great one was the world, what I think is still the world record self-portrait, right? That was sold yeah. out of the um, the German collection at Sotheby's mm -hmm. London mm -hmm. a few years ago. But but look, maybe too, like maybe there's just too much, guys. Like yeah. maybe it's too much. I mean, back to my earlier point, like there are no mid-season sales anymore. They're just sales all the time. And there's going to be an Olin in London and there's going to be one in New York and there's going to be one at the fair and Gagosian's going to have three. And like, are there enough people out there to really buy this art? I mean, I remember in 2013, my, you know, friend and mentor, Brett, you know, Gorby would say like, there will always be someone new coming into the market. Like even if someone comes out, someone else is, you know, going to mm -hmm. be new. And, and he's right. There will always be someone new, but now it feels like we need five new people. Like the one isn't going to cut it. Because like you said, the primary market is so strong. And I always like to say, like someone new coming in, there's more art today than there was yesterday. And that's going to be true again tomorrow in perpetuity, right? It's just, and we're going to make a new discovery on top of that. So we're going to find a whole bunch of existing art to add to the stuff that just came out of studios and shows. And it's, you know, just mass amounts of material that's going to come out. And, but you that, know, the market's going to have to decide what's good, what's bad, and filter through it to find generational quality. But that's why we were all expecting these sales both London and and especially these in New York to be smaller and it, it was such a surprise to see more lots sell and pretty much the same dollar volume so you, you may be wondering where these people are coming from but 
they're here and they're spending and maybe it's trade people stocking up or looking for um, uh, stuff to hold on to or making uh, bets. But I mean, the the, the dollars don't lie uh, that way. And I, I think that's the big surprise in, in all of this, given everything else that's going on. You know, we've got bank failures, you know, we've got, you know, everyone screaming and yelling about the, the Fed and inflation. Uh, I, I think everyone's assumption was, okay, you know, once uh, uh, the big uh, season of the end of last year was over, there'd be kind of a, a, a winter, Sarah, and everyone would, you know, get a reset and you get a chance to get new uh, estimates out there. And, you know, but some buyers would be chasing from guarantees and all. And instead of seeing that, not that we're not seeing, you know, a pullback, but there's still just so much activity just at a different lower level. That's what's fascinating about this. But like you said, I think, Sarah, earlier in the conversation and marrying the graph that you put out earlier today, this kind of like one, you know, two bidders, right? Two bidders below the low that made the price on the hues. The average lot had 1.05 bids above the estimate on them, above the low estimate on them, right? I think that was something that at the end of last year, the Cecily Brown market was kind of the, the beacon of that, like, okay, we've hit the point where the Cecily Brown estimates match the market. Mm-hmm. You can't go in advance of this, right? Like this is going to sell between the estimate at the low, it's going to be, maybe it might be an open air private sale, but we've hit the moment where we've scaled the estimates up to the point that the market is willing to well, play on Well, except for that jewel of a painting that was at Sotheby's, which flew. I mean, and, and the painting that Christie's had in London, which was a, and the painting that Sotheby's had in London was pretty like tepid results. Although when you think and Look, I think she's a $20 million artist and will be a $20 million artist. But, you know, those paintings selling on one or two bids at the two or three million pound level. And then you have, you know, this little, you know, just exquisite, perfect, you know, work, you know, totally outperforming. That shows me not so much that there's, you know, more demand for the smaller paintings or that that was a superior work, but that there are more people in the market at that level then there totally. are, you know, a, well, a, which goes at, back to my look, earlier Bob Thompson point. And then it's also quality. Like nobody had seen that picture really, right? Like the mass market hadn't seen that picture. The Sotheby's oh, London no, no. picture. Do you really think that matters though? Like No, because find another all... find another painting in that scale. And that's what right. everybody that's seems what, to say right. they want, right? Right. No, 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 I know. But I'm so Because they this, can afford it. Because idea, it's not like someone's seen bucks. it. Okay. Who, okay. You three people have seen it or what? Like I'm just, I really yeah, want everyone to like nymphs, move along. Nymphs have departed more than three people have seen that painting. I'm sorry, that painting. But it's still got bids. To Sarah's point, it's always new to someone. And Sarah said this earlier, there's new people coming into the market and maybe for good or bad reasons, they want a uh, Cecily Brown. And, you know, personal taste has something to do with it uh, too. And someone said, sure, why not? That's not a bad price. And there was at least one other person because there was bidding. It wasn't like, oh, we we just caught a bid and sold it uh, uh, for the consigner. And, and, And I don't, and I know, look, we always talk about, oh, the show's coming and all. I think there's there's probably a, a whole different level of stuff that will happen after the show. Right now, we're just, she has become, uh, you know, she's the Gerhard Richter of the market going forward. I would I mean, like to avoid the comparison to a male painter, if you don't mind. But I, I do think, like, Cecily is the real deal. She's been the real deal since the 90s. Like, the... There's always been a market for her work. Um, every, you know, great collection seems to have one now to my earlier or wants to have one. And to my, you know, unlike maybe the photorealist market until we do the show and change the whole thing, like that is such a global audience. 
for Cecily. I mean, I, I can tell you in Florence right now at the Rebidango collection, there's a Cecily in there and it's it's a knockout and it's in like the last room that you go through and it's a great painting. So now you've just exposed it to everybody who's coming on spring break to Florence. There's a, a new, um, I think it's a triptych at the Courtauld. I mean, she is a global artist, instantly recognizable with a, a lot of high quality work. I mean, that's the only comparison that is that she's global. She works in a style that makes it very uh, easy to recognize her, her work, but her work is complex and varied. And um, there's just a lot of it. And there seems to be a lot, you know, uh, of a market uh, around there. And I suspect you're right that the people who are buying now in five or 10 years will be very happy because there will be many more people coming into uh, that market as time uh, goes on. You know, the one that Sotheby's had, which was part of the um, queer artists, um, Ali Forney Center um, charity, you know, sold for the same estimate as the one or the same price as the one that Christie's had. We priced ours at two to 300,000. It was a 2008 work, same scale. They priced theirs at 80 to 120 and it was a brand new work, 2021. Um, and they made the same price. And I think that really, again, speaks to my earlier point, which is that, and, and I think the charity component is not to be overlooked, but people want the thing that is the newest. Like 2021 might be a better date than 2018, which is, again, crazy. But I, I think, you know, uh, a very good like illustration of that point of where the market is. But I think that's going to remain true. We're, we've hit a moment where we've got, you know, you look at other other big venue things, be it art, sports, whatever. You've got artists who are still in their MFA programs who are having international museum shows at this point, right? Like people who haven't graduated and they're not just getting residencies, but they're like literally showing in multiple venues across the planet. And, you know, it's in, will that be considered academic work or you know early work later or you know it, it that that i think is an evolving conversation that's probably the subject for another po podcast because there is it goes to what you're saying sarah like we need more collectors and yet there seems to be all of this work getting sucked up uh you know by this this massive audience for for art and we just can't see it because so much of it's going through primary uh, galleries and the thing with primary is it's i was talking to a collector i think just after la and he was like you know, 8,000 is now $25,000 for these things that were sort of just on the cusp of a thesis, you know, MFA crit coming out. Those works, which were historically five, six, ten thousand $10,000 are now like twenty five. $30,000. You know, it's, the whole thing is, and it's not just inflation, it's just shifted. I was just going to say, it's inflation, George. I mean, but now I'm going to go back and get my four inch Bob Thompson, same price. Isn't inflation good for the art market? <laughs> yeah, technically, I think, right? It's supposed to be inflation proof until you have to take your inflation dollars. Yeah, I mean, to be clear, I don't really, I don't know if that's true. No, I, just, I don't. I, I, I don't know. Know. We're, we're of things yeah. that like rows in finance say to me about the art world that I could just like tell you. That's one of them. Finance for regurgitation hour. Yeah. We could do that. That that is a podcast. We just have to find the finance bros. Finance bros versus art bros. That's the podcast. And right. everyone has to wear a gilet to it. That's the <laughs> no point. one's both. No one's both actually. And, and actually, no, there, no one's, but both. there's one person who's both. But I'm not going to. I'm not going to tell you who. All right. Respectful of uh, Sarah's time, I'm going to call it there. Thank I you so Richard much. I got a Richard Estes to pitch. <laughs> there you go. You go get him, Sarah. Thanks, George. Thank you for joining us for Live Arts Market Pulse. 
The Our Intelligence Podcast is edited by Colin Ketchum, who also composed the original music. Come back next week. And don't forget to download the LiveArt app or visit us at liveart.io.